episode 18, What Would Albert Einstein Do? Today I'm speaking with Karen Phelan from Operating Principles. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. A recent study by the Texas Medical Association found that one in three physicians experiences burnout at any given time. And the study outlined three top strategies for lowering stress and risk. The first is enhance the patient-physician relationship. The second is improve communication. And the third is avoid medication errors. I would likely say that The first and second, enhance the patient-physician relationship, which is kind of another name for team-based approach to care and and a team which includes the patient. And the second, improve communication. If you do those two well, you'll probably avoid medication errors, at least uh, at, at some level. Today, I'm speaking with Karen Phelan, who is the author of two books, I'm Sorry I Broke Your Company and Who Moved My Holy Hand Grenade, Best Titles Ever. Karen is also a partner in a consulting company called Operating Principles. We talked today about not only how to build effective teams and open communication, but also how to not fall prey to business fads and consultants hell-bent on measuring everything ad nauseum, which actually limits innovation and and, and maybe even effective functioning of the teams that are trying to innovate and evolve and improve, especially when times are changing rapidly, like we are experiencing today in the healthcare industry. So with that, help me welcome Karen to the program today. Welcome to the program, Karen. Hi, Stacey. It's good to be here. I'm really excited to speak with you today because you have written two books. And although these books are not about the healthcare industry specifically, the issues you have written about, Karen, certainly echo those which are faced by any startup health information or otherwise and and entrepreneurs. And I also thought you gave some darn good advice in your second book about the employee types amongst our listeners who might be struggling to navigate this new kind of corporate environment that has emerged following sea changes like the ACA and patent cliffs and economic downturns. So I'd love to talk about them one at a time. And then after that, maybe we can get into two topics, which you know a lot about, which are team building and communication. Let's talk about, I'm sorry, I broke your company. What's the the, the premise? I have a little bit of an unusual career and the fact that I've been a management consultant and then I went into industry and I worked for Big Pharma for two companies. Then I kind of left that and, and I'm now back into consulting and also speaking and, and writing. And I had the wonderful opportunity to see how all the practices that I had been bringing to companies actually played out and how most of them had a lot of unintended consequences. I wrote the book because I was part of initiatives at these big companies that weren't going to work because of the structures they had in place. For instance, innovation, and everybody's talking about innovation and engagement today, and my understanding is that, you know, you have these human resources practices that are incredibly restrictive, meaning you have people tied into these measurable goals, very specific measurable goals that 
determine your compensation at the end of the year. And there are also individual goals. So there's no room for flexibility in dealing with your environment. You're tied into this rigid structure. And there's also no room for collaboration in helping people out or changing your priorities. So a lot of the times, the reason why people, you know, aren't innovative and the reason why they aren't engaged in their work is because they're tied into this incredibly rigid structure. When you say rigid structure, do you mean a hierarchical one or do you mean that their key performance indicators are measuring things which don't enable someone to, that that they inhibit risk-taking, maybe? More of the latter. And I, I think one of the things that I was talking about the other day is we were talking about productive R&D. And if, you know, it sounds great. Oh, productive R&D. I want my productive R&D to, you know, you know my R&D to be productive. But I've actually worked in a, in a think tank in, in labs right out of my career. And they had the policy that, you know, you take a lot of really, really smart people and you give them lab equipment and, you know, and then voila, they come up with stuff. I was sort of shocked when I walked into that environment, but I have to say that everybody was, you know, incredibly innovative and productive and everybody came up with worthwhile products. But when you put a structure of measures and you try to predict what's going to be productive and what isn't, I think you're bound to fail because so much of innovation is just serendipity. (laughs) You 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 don't know what's going to happen. But once you put in these measures and these monitors and these goals and you can't do anything outside of these goals, now you are 100% reliant on your ability to predict the future. There's some great Steve Jobs quotes that that reflect that exact same sentiment that innovation is completely illogical, that it's it's creativity and imagination. It's not analytics. Exactly. And if you, you know, I look at very successful people and I see what makes them successful and and pretty much all of them are responsive to their environment. I mean, Steve Jobs is perfect. iTunes. I mean, he saw what was going on in the world with the music industry and he said, you know, I I think I have a solution. But five years earlier, did he predict that that's what he was going to do? You know, it's very hard to predict the future. So so basically what you're saying is that typically what winds up happening when a consultant comes in is that they put measures in place in order to measure productivity, but the very act of doing that inhibits the creativity that's necessary for innovation. Exactly. What can a company do about this or are there, is there any um, additional info that you want to overlay? I write a lot in the book about the fads, and I think that companies are enamored with the, the fads, and I liken that to, you know, fad diets. And the reality is, you know, although these, these miracle foods or these miracle diets hold a lot of attraction because we like that magic pill, I mean, the reality is if you want to be healthy, you need a healthy lifestyle. And that means you need to do things on a daily basis, like eating right and exercising. And if you embark on these fads, extreme exercise or extreme diets, you're more likely to ruin your metabolism or get get injured, which prevents your long-term goals. So what I recommend is that companies really need to look at what they do on a daily basis. 
you know, are they creating an environment of trust where people feel free to, one, have candid conversations and also to bring ideas to fruition? You know, what kind of environment are, are you creating? And a lot of these things that really happen on a daily basis with the conversations that people have in the hallway, with how people interact. And, you know, my book asks you to look at kind of creating healthy lifestyles in, in companies rather than binging up from, you know, fad to fad to fad. It's so funny to hear you say that because working with, with some larger companies, I think the, the, the fads might be easier for us to spot than maybe even if you're working internally at one company. Like, for example, the fad this year seems to be upper management requiring budgets before anyone has figured out what their strategies and tactics are. And, you know, looking across companies, we see just, you know, one of our clients after another struggling to figure out how to put a price tag on something that is as yet undefined. So is that what you're talking about? People do get a little bit obsessed, I guess, with the with the dollar signs. And that's, you know, again, this whole measuring and monitoring and resulting in, you know, return on investment. And I always laugh because people are like, well, we have to figure out what the return on investment of this particular initiative is. And they, you know, see the calculations and they see the numbers and they feel really good about it. But once you scratch the surface of those numbers, <laughs> you realize that they're just sort of made up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, everybody feels it because yeah. it's got a number to attached to it. Yeah. But I, you also can see how there are the, the, the fads that you were talking about before where everyone kind of collectively across the industry comes up with, well, we're going to figure we're going to calculate ROI this way. And, and one particular year, they all seem to be doing something the same way. Part of it the, with the different initiatives is there's a reaction to one thing. Now, engagement is a big thing. And it's like, well, you just put in this highly specific, intensive performance management system where people have to rank their, their goals and are ranked and rated. And it's demotivating. So now you have a situation where you, you've put in something that demotivates folks, and now you have a demotivation problem. Now you need an engagement initiative. What advice do you have for companies who are struggling to be innovative, but yet they're sort of limited by the, themselves, you know, that they're, they're their own worst enemy, so to speak? I think before you can do any of these initiatives, you have to figure out what the barriers yeah, and the obstacles yeah. are. People put these initiatives on top of these, these structures that I was saying, and they never get the results that they want. You know, I was part of an empowerment initiative, and everybody's like, oh, we need to bring decision-making down, we need to push decision-making down and empower people to do these things. But yet, the budgets were tightly controlled at the, the very, very top. No one had any spending authority. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you can't empower people. Everybody can't spend money on anything. Effectively, what you're saying, and, you know, in, in the healthcare industry, obviously, at the end of the day, everyone's trying to improve patient outcome. That's really the noble cause that the healthcare industry revolves around with everyone kind of focused on that end game but depending on what functional area you're in or what part of the industry that you're in obviously that that looks very different how would you recommend thinking about that relative to making your company most productive in in that area you know is there any kind of universal advice that you might have i think it all comes down to we we are now in in the age really of, of knowledge work we're, we're no longer in the 
industrial age. And I think this is really important when it comes to the healthcare industry because you have people who are highly, highly educated and highly trained um, and other people who have lots and lots of experience. And, you know, my experience is that you really need to leverage the knowledge of the people in the room. That's the, the most important goal for patient outcomes because I've always found that somebody somewhere probably knows the answer, knows what's going on. It's just how do you get that communicated right and how do you get to, how do you find that right person? How do you find the knowledge? How do you get that out? And if you, if you stifle the communications and you have rigid hierarchies or you have environments where it's not okay to speak your mind because sometimes especially you know in, in medical communities you don't want to question authority but you need to have that knowledge surface you need to have that free flow of information and so I think to make the most of all the knowledge of the people in the room you have to have these high functioning teams so that's that's the most important thing to me is if, if you're working in a knowledge-based world which we are you have to leverage the knowledge that's there. You can't stifle it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but most of this information is is contained in your book. I'm sorry, I broke your company. I think it's the theme. I think, you know, what I just talked about is, is the theme of everything that I do. And it's the theme of my books. Who moved my holy hand grenade? <laughs> As you can tell, I'm, I have a, a little bit of a hysterical streak. That book is, is, is a satire, but it's a, it's a useful satire. A lot of times when people write satires of books, you know, they're just for comedic effect. And that book came out as a manager. I found I was constantly teaching, you know, people the same things over and over and over again. And this is stuff that they don't learn in business school. And it was things like, you know, how do you, how do you reframe problems? How do you get out of your own head so you can have a good, uh, a proper conversation with somebody? What's really the, the, the right way to approach authority figures? You know, I call it the proper way of sucking up. And there were all these little things that I felt could really help other people and make the workplace more productive, but they, they, they're not the kind of things that that gets taught in business school. Do you feel like these your advice would change depending on whether you worked for a small startup entrepreneurial venture or whether you're working for a gigantic, you know, payer or, or, or pharma company? I, I think they're universal. I just want to tell you my own, you know, little bit of, of my own background is I have two engineering degrees from MIT. I started out in uh, a, a lab at a think tank operation for the defense industry. And I went from there into consulting and I consulted, you know, technology, manufacturing. So my my education and a lot of my background is really high tech. And at a certain point in my consulting career, I felt kind of stymied because even though I would present logical information and say, well, this is really, you know, the logical decision that you should make, I found that clients would often not make the rational or logical decision. And it really, you know, it really confounded me until I got to a point where I'm like, well, I have to figure out what's going on here. Obviously, the world is not rational. And then I started dealing with the people side and the politics side. And I realized that behavior really isn't, isn't rational. And I had this purely rational perspective of the world. Once I, I, you know, learned that and I figured out, well, what are the, the dynamics that are going on? 
I realized that the people side of the equation is probably more important than the technical side of the equation. When you say people weren't making rational decisions, do you mean that, for example, all signs would point to this one solution having the RO, the highest ROI, for example, but yet people would decide on the other one? Or, or... Yeah, and they decide on the other one. There's a thing of sunk, sunk cost. And, you know, they embark on a path and they have invested so much money and then they call us in to say this isn't working. And then I do this whole analysis that says, well, you know, this isn't really ever going to work. So what you really need to do is abandon what you've done and start over. And you know, this is the cost and the benefit. In the long run, it's going to you know, be much less in cost. And I find, you know, people nod their heads and then they continue on the path that they've just, <laughs> because they've sunk, because they sunk that cost. And it's, you know, I think Daniel Conan writes about that um, in one of his papers is, is people want to recoup that, that loss. And they're willing to spend more money and lose more money to recoup that loss. Do you think that if you would ask the, the people that you're speaking about, whether they're behaving rationally, they would say yes. So they think they're behaving rational, rationally. You know, they've figured out how to justify it in some way, but actually they're really not. Right. And that's all of us. I do it too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's also why any article that you read about the stock market or, you know, pretty much anything talks about those exact same factors. So, yeah. Yeah. And in the, in the Who Moved My Holy Hand Grenade book where I take, you know, Monty, Monty Python movie and, and use that as the framework for everything you need to learn in business, I have a section on uh, I have a section on the cognitive biases that people fall prey to. I don't know if you know the movie, but I take I take the movie and I use that as the framework for every lesson that you need to learn in business. And I, and I do have a section on uh, the silly decisions that business people make. Is there any example that you might be able to give how this would relate to, for example, uh, you know, a hospital or provider organization or a, a payer organization? Is there anything specific which you feel is particularly relevant there? People tend to hone in on the first viable solution as the best viable solution. So, so one of the rules in, in brainstorming is that you don't want to settle on a solution too quickly because we anchor. As soon as we find something that is suitable, we'll anchor to it and we'll get attached to it, even though you know there's no rational reason for us. So a doctor will get attached to a diagnosis because it's the first suitable diagnosis that meets those symptoms. And you may be attached to it for too long, or you may be attached to a particular, um, you know, drug or, or, or some, you know, some other, some other solution that you're looking for too quickly. And you don't realize that you're, you now use that as your, as your anchor to judge all the other solutions by. But that's how people think is we like a quick solution and we'll attach to something and then we'll try to dismiss the other solutions as they come along because we're trying to make the one that we picked work. Wow. Do you have any advice on how to not anchor? I think you just need to be aware of it. Awareness helps, but if you're doing decision making, you know, one of the rules is, is don't attach yourself to a solution too quickly. Have multiple solutions available before you choose one that you think is suitable. I remember reading something recently that that really advocated as quickly as possible, writing down a whole bunch of solutions and then weeding through them. I, I bet that's probably the reason why. Yeah. But I can definitely also see how, you know, in the 
provider environment, especially if decisions need to be made really quickly, that would be a difficult challenge that kind of goes against maybe intuition. You know, if you're intuiting a, a certain problem and your gut reaction is is something, it might be really difficult to step back and methodically think through other solutions, especially if the clock is ticking. And when Malcolm Gladwell wrote, wrote Blink, he wrote about kind of both sides of that problem. He wrote how, you know, some people have this intuition, which is built on years and years of experience and knowledge, and their intuition is wonderfully accurate. Um, other people have an intuition that's just their gut reaction to something, and it's not built on years and years of knowledge and experience. <laughs> but still, that intuition feels the same. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It doesn't feel any different to you. I think you just need an awareness that, okay, you know, uh, a doctor who's treating certain diseases and has this experience in infectious diseases know, you know, what, what she sees all the time. Her, her gut reaction is probably uh, a good one. But if you have someone who's not as specific and they have a gut reaction to something, I think they have to, to temper it. It's funny that you said that. Be, say that because this is kind of another perspective on something that a recent guest was talking about, Pete Sheldon, who is an epidemiologist. He talks about how, you know, how to achieve the best health outcomes. And one of the things that he said is that if you're talking with, for example, a, you know, a, a doctor who works in a center of excellence and sees thousands upon thousands, I might be exaggerating slightly, maybe hundreds and upon hundreds of, of patients with a certain condition, then they tend to be able to, without a clinical decision support system, understand what the best treatment methodology is. But if you're dealing with a, someone in a community center who might only see a few of those patients, then typically they are not so good at it. So basically you're saying the same thing. The sad part of that is, is that you have a high confidence, whether you're in a high knowledge situation <laughs> or a low knowledge situation. You know, that, that gut feels right. It may not be right, but it feels right. And, and when you have a solution that, that feels right to you, you have a high confidence in it. And, and so people often look at somebody who's highly confident in their decisions and think they must be right, but that's not always the case. And, and that brings me back to that whole communication. <laughs> you know, it's understanding that. And is there somebody who can say, you seem really confident in this. Why are you confident? Or, you know, what? what led you to those things and, and, and kind of, again, act as, as a balance to that. And maybe we should take that as a segue, because the other thing that I really want to make sure that we get to today are two topics which I think we all could use some help with and which I know that your consulting practice, Operating Principles, focuses on. What I'm thinking about right now is, is the ACA and specifically two effects of it, which is Number one, that team-based care is the way of the future. So specialists talking to to general practitioners and specialists talking to each other, i.e. we need to be able to build effective teams, which I know is something that you have done a lot of work in. And then the other thing, which is what we were just kind of talking about, which is communication. And that becomes important because, for example, the role of care extenders is 
becoming absolutely critical in the delivery of patient care. I mean, really, even within a solo doctor practice, care is much less of a solo, solo enterprise these days. And whenever people are talking amongst themselves, there, there's communication. So, you know, in order to pull off this whole ACA thing, these two rate critical things, this these effective teams and good communication... Obviously, you've got a lot of experience in these. So I would love it if we could talk about those two aspects of what you do a little bit. Uh, of course, of course. And I think I, I started talking about that be, before because it's hard for me not to because I've, I've learned, like I said, you know, I've learned from my complete content-driven <laughs> logic yeah. mindset to this whole how do we communicate and work as as a team, some of my experiences working for, for teams is we used to give people a, an exercise and we'd have people complete it individually, you know, just an assessment of something. And then we bring the same people together and as a team and say, okay, now I want you to do the, the same assessment, but you have to work on it as, as a team. One of the really interesting things is it's that task is a diagnosis for whether you have a team that's functional or whether you have a team that's dysfunctional. If you have individuals who score higher on the assessments than the team does, and that happens because you have certain personalities that dominate and knowledge is stifled and you don't get you know, all the knowledge of the room available. It's only the knowledge of, of maybe one person. That assessment is a good way of showing that, and that and that happens. And so you, when you do that and, and you say, okay, well, instead of leveraging all the knowledge in all these people's heads, what we've done is we've, we've stifled it and we perform worse now. You get a good functioning team that, you know, everybody participates, everybody's respected, and they feel free to say, well, I know about this, I know about that. And now everybody can add to the knowledge and everybody's knowledge is, is gained. And I find that the latter you know, situation is, is more of a rarity. <laughs> a lot of times what you do is you, is you get a team that's dominated, they may, maybe one person or, or two people, and you're not taking advantage of all of the knowledge in, in the room. And in a, a patient environment, you know, the doctors have an incredible amount of, of you know, knowledge about diseases, they've gone through this intense training, but sometimes you get somebody on the, the lower level who works with the patient and knows a little bit more about how the patient is reacting and responding to different things and may see more of the symptoms. And it's very important for that information to, to be spread around and everybody to be aware of that. It's funny because I was was talking to a friend recently, several people actually, who made the comment that they, you know, went to visit a, a physician office or a hospital, and I, 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 one of my friends described it as it was a doctorless environment. I, I wonder if her simply noticing that is a symptom of what you're saying. That obviously there was people that were running around that maybe not maybe did not act like respected members of the team, you know, had these people been empowered and had these people treated her differently, she, she wouldn't have been so cognizant of the fact that it was a whole bunch of Indians with no chief. The way I look at it is, is you know, these people have to be, you know, the eyes and ears of the physician. 
And it really should be the the extension um, in, in, in some way. So it's so important to get that information back because you have a situation now where you have, you know, the doctor's time is very limited and then you have, you know, the physician's assistants and, you know, other people doing all these other things. And it, it's really got to be a sense of how can how can we be a part of a whole? If I'm going to be the brain, I need my eyes, I need my hands, I need everything else. And how do we make this this a whole so we're, we're, we're connected and we get this information? I find that, especially in the medical world, there's a lot of hierarchy. And there's reasons for it, but people who, some people are afraid to speak up. Some people don't want to have their authority challenged. I find that there's a lot of this, this context going on that could get in the way of patient care. What do you do about that? Are there some methodologies or, or processes or that, that, that we could follow in order to take steps to change that? My company really focuses on doing things in a very simple, intuitive, and, and fun way. I always like to look for irrational, illogical ways of doing things. <laughs> My favorite. My favorite ways. <laughs> I, I mean, that sounds a little crazy. So, so what, we've, what we've done is, is we've come up with, we call it a game. And we call it Act Like a Leader. And what we've done is we've looked at very successful, and, and our main clients are our businesses. So we've looked at very successful, you know, business leaders. We also have some other, you know, like Albert Einstein and Abraham Lincoln. And we've done profiles of these people uh, asking, you know, what do we think made them successful? What are, kinds of things are they really good at? And what kinds of questions do, do they ask? Instead of going through that whole team assessment that I used to do, because I find that people don't really have the, the time for it anymore, is we just take out the, the cards and we say, okay, what would Oprah Winfrey do in this situation? And let you know, everybody talk about it. And we try to depersonalize that conversation. So it's not, I'm objecting to your authority, but I'm going to ask the question, you know, what would so-and-so do in this situation? If you... If you bring it that way, like, for instance, I'll use a business example. If somebody has concerns about a product quality, and I've seen this in, in real life examples, but we're trying to meet a launch date and the team is meeting and, you know, somebody says, well, I'm not sure our quality is up to fact. And the team goes, but we agree this is our launch date, blah, 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 blah. When the conversation is stifled. But if somebody says, okay, guys, what would Steve Jobs say about our product? And everybody's going, okay, what would Steve Jobs say about our product? And they'd say, well, you know, maybe the quality really isn't all that good. <laughs> so, so you see, it's a, it's a different dynamic. It's a very easy way to get that different dynamic. The advice would be to have kind of a list of business leaders that are respected that, you know, or relevant to your industry. And as the team goes through its decision-making process, kind of reference the questions, you know, what would Steve Jobs do or others that might be respected and very relevant? Right. And, and you know, an opposite personality would be Jack Welch. Jack Welch would say, we're spending too much time worrying about quality. We need to meet our commitments. <laughs> but, you know, but it's important to get these perspectives. And the reason why we choose the people that we do is because you can't argue with their success. 
Someone can say, oh, we're just obsessed with quality. And I don't, I don't hold that value. I'm more successful than you are, blah, blah, blah. Your values don't matter. But when someone, you know, says, well, you know, it's Steve Jobs, he's really successful. And he would think this. Or it's Jack Welsh, and he's really successful. And he would think this. So you can't really argue that that value system doesn't lead to success because these people have been incredibly successful, but they have different values. Relative to the healthcare industry, what could be a really great exercise would be to come up with very respected individuals within whatever our individual discipline is that we feel have achieved the goals that we're trying to achieve and then make picture cutouts of them and hang them on our conference room walls or or uh, in, in the place where decisions are are being made and glance up at them and just have that moment of reflection before we barrel forward. It works for the communications and it works for, for teamwork because, you know, another exercise that we do is we have the team go through the cards and they pick out the people they think they're most like. And they then they take out the people that they don't want to, they don't like working with and the people that they do like working with. And then you, you go through it and you have a whole stack of people that aren't, you know, that aren't being used. <laughs> and you're like, well, what perspectives are we missing? Do we have a lot of big picture thinkers and not enough people who are detail oriented? Do we have a lot of people who are very focused on kind of the, the you know, physical treatment, but not necessarily the, the mental well-being that, that goes a, along with it? Do we need an Oprah Winfrey in the group? Would your advice be, because I, I, I definitely understand what you're saying, and I've definitely been in conversations where you've got a couple of big picture thinkers and then a couple of very detail-oriented people who are kind of at each other's throats. The big picture thinkers are, are thinking very aspirationally and trying to brainstorm at an aspirational level. And then there's detail-oriented people in the room who are sort of picking apart these gigantic, unformed aspirations way before it's the time is right necessarily to get down to that level of of granularity would the advice be to you know have sort of separate meetings like everything in its place to sort of think through what where along the timeline of decision making are we or is it and you know and then have only big picture thinkers in a meeting about big picture and then as those ideas get refined start adding people to the mix as it's appropriate or is it or does a functioning team mean everyone can sit in the room at the same time and respect each other's parts of the process? I don't think there's one road to success. You know, one of the things that I've learned from my experience is that you can be successful in, in many different ways. And I think if you do structure, you know, this is a time where we're going to brainstorm ideas and we're not going to nitpick them. And we're going to nitpick them later on. I, I think that's a fine approach. But I do think you need to have teams that respect each other and understand that they each have a, a role to play. Because the, the group think, to me, is, is sometimes more dangerous than the, you know, the teams that are, are at each other's throat. Because the group think, you know, are all people who think alike. They get along, they think alike, and they have these huge blind spots and errors in, in thinking that they're completely unaware of. And they don't become aware of it until they've made a huge mistake. And that's what the 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 card game, if you will, I'm not sure what you call it, where you you have the cards with it, the respected people on it. That that helps uh, overcome groupthink before 
crisis emerges, right? And it can be used a number of different ways because if you go through that exercise and you who are we missing, we don't have any Warren Buffett that, you know, really look to see what the worst case scenarios are going to be and, and plans for them. We have a lot of people who are very optimistic. Maybe we need to make sure that we cover these perspectives as we go along and you can, you know, pack the cards up or assign somebody that responsibility. I mean, the other thing that you can do, too, is, is you know, what you said about the big thinkers and the detailed thinkers. And that's that's pretty common. And what you can do is you can, you know, recognize that and understand that those are both valid points of view. But then you can also choose personalities who are your tiebreakers. Who, who do we have? Who do we respect that we can use as a tiebreaker for our, our way of thinking? You know, if we have, well, Steve Jobs and Jack Welch's, maybe we need the Warren Buffett or we need a Mark Stewart or we need Donald Trump or somebody that can act as a tiebreaker for us. And we can we can look to that perspective to provide a happy medium. I can see how adding those personas into the mix of real people, you know, we've got real people and then we've got people who are acting out a persona that might also help with communication or it might help with teams where there are a couple people who dominate the conversation because it might be easier for someone who has a little bit of a less aggressive personality instead of saying I question your idea might be easier to say what would Martha Stewart do that's a little bit less in your face right and it gets everybody to saying now you've stopped the conversation now I have to get out of my own ideas my own head I have to think about what someone else would do so it completely changes the dynamic of the conversation I can definitely see how in a small business that would be really relevant. And I also can see that in a larger business where you definitely have a hierarchical structure with with individuals with varying role powers who are in the same meeting where it might be easier for someone in a subordinate position to to question um, a decision that's being made in a very soft way, but a very powerful one. Right. I know we, we've talked a lot about team building and I think we've we've folded in communication as, as kind of a thread throughout this entire conversation, because obviously it is the glue that kind of holds teams together and a lot of the things that we've been talking about together. But is, is there any further advice that you might have relative to making sure that teams who need to communicate with each other do so? One of the things they really have to to ask each other is, are we subtracting from each other's, like the individual knowledge, or are we adding adding to, to the knowledge? That free flow of communication is, is so incredibly important. And I've discovered in consulting and I've discovered in management that, you know, when you come up with a business problem, there's probably someone somewhere in the organization who has the key to that business problem. <laughs> you just have to you just have to find it. You just have to find that person. You just have to get that information out. And time and money spent on initiatives and systems, et cetera, can be saved if you can just find, you know, that person who has that key that piece of information that you need to, to, to solve it. And you know, you laugh, but I was part of this huge system implementation and it wasn't working and they asked me to come in and audit and problem solve and blah blah blah. And it turned out that there was somebody who had a different agenda and <laughs> had a different goal and they were the key. <laughs> you know? 
that was why it wasn't working. <laughs> well, it's pretty easy. You know, and it's like, you know, after eight months, it, it was like, well, you know, if we had known that from the beginning, we wouldn't have had to do all, all this work. So, I mean, that sounds so simplistic, but anything that people can do to get that flow of information, especially if you have, uh, you know, a caretaker who's with the patient and sees what they're like on a daily basis and see how they are responding or not responding and what kind of moods they're in. That information needs to go up to the people who are deciding the treatment. It's so simple, but at the same time, it's extremely difficult. Karen, how how can people reach you? You have um, a consulting practice called Operating Principles, yeah. Right. How can people get a hold of you if they're if they're interested in learning more? We have a website. It's Operating Principles, and it's P A L S, as in the people, you know, um, dot com. We call it operating principles, I say with the the misspelling, because we want to focus on the people solutions. So our principles are all people. Go to our website. You can find me personally as as an author. I have a website under KarenGFallon.com. You can find my books pretty much everywhere. Amazon, of course, in bookstores as well. And if anyone's interested And these very simple solutions to some of the key people issues, you know, I'd be happy to talk to anybody about it. Fantastic. And we will also put links to both Karen's books as well as her her websites on the Relentless Health Value website under the show notes for this episode. It was so nice to speak with you today, Karen. I definitely learned a lot. I I am inspired to to go back to my office and, and figure out how to implement some of these ideas which you have shared. I really enjoyed talking with you too today, Stacey. Links to the information that Karen mentioned can be found in the show notes for this episode, which is located at relentlesshealthvalue.com slash 18. I certainly learned a lot today. I had a great time talking with Karen, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Once again, my name is Stacey Richter the host of Relentless Health Value, and this podcast is sponsored by Franklin HealthCom. Did you know that you do not have to remember to download the latest Relentless Health Value podcast each week? You can subscribe. If you subscribe, then the episode will be automatically delivered to you in one of two ways. The first way is via iTunes. If you go to RelentlessHealthValue.com, and you look over in the right-hand sidebar, you will see a gigantic orange dot. If you click on that dot, you will be taken over to iTunes, and if you hit subscribe there, then every week in your iTunes library, the podcast will automatically download. If you use the podcast app, it will be extra convenient. The other way to subscribe is by looking right underneath that large orange dot to a little form there that says, get the podcast delivered to your email. If you click on that button and type in your email address, then once a week you will get an email with a link to the podcast. It is very easy to subscribe. I'm so glad that you listened this week. Please interact with us on Twitter. We are at Relentless Health on Twitter, and that would be Relentless with only one S. So Relentless with one S, health. Please definitely feel free to interact with us, leave a comment, ask a question. We'd love to hear from you. And I very much hope that you'll tune in next week.